Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. If you're like me, you may be finding it hard to believe that Christmas is right around the corner. We've had some rather cold days here in Scotland, and the days are getting very short. Today the sun rose at 8.23 a.m., and it set at 3.42 p.m. By the time we get to the winter solstice, that's the 22nd of December, daylight in Scotland will last for only 7 hours and 48 minutes. As always, if you're finding the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me invite you to get in touch with me about the podcast if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions. One of the things that academics do is publish academic articles and books. A book that I co-edited with two friends, Aaron Simmons and Neil DeRue, has finally appeared. When I say finally, I mean that I wrote the initial draft of my chapter so long ago that I actually had to look at my CV to figure out when I first gave that chapter as a talk back in 2017. The title of the book is Philosophies of Liturgy, Explorations of Embodied Religious Experience. It's published with Bloomsbury Academic. Alas, one of the problems with many academic publications is that they are incredibly expensive. If you'd like a copy, you can buy one on Amazon for about $120, or if you're in the UK, £120. Given a price like that, even academics who might be working on the topic probably can't afford to buy one. With that in mind, I'd like to provide a version on the podcast. It's actually somewhat longer than the published version, since I will be adding text to clarify things. Here's how the paper begins. A quick glance at the literature in the subdiscipline known as philosophy of religion makes one thing clear. A great deal of that work focuses on belief, what it is to have a belief, how beliefs should be defined, and the propositional nature of belief. Put more pointedly, philosophy of religion has been particularly concerned with doctrinal belief. Kevin Schilbrach, who has a chapter in the book, observes that, and now I'm quoting from him, the doctrinal dimension of religions has received the lion's share of the attention from philosophers of religion. And then goes on to add, the task of developing and defending religious doctrines tends to be the work of literate elites, typically from a leisure class and typically male. The result of both the narrow focus and the patriarchal hermeneutical perspective is that, and here I'm quoting from them again, they limit the subject matter of philosophy of religion to a small subset of religious phenomena. In other words, religion ends up being defined largely, though not entirely, in terms of belief. The philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff attests to that emphasis in the opening paragraph of his recent book, Acting Liturgically, Philosophical Reflections on Religious Practice. Here's what he says. In recent decades, there has been an extraordinary surge of interest in philosophy of religion within the analytic tradition of philosophy. Those who have participated in this movement, myself included, have focused almost all their attention on just four topics. The nature of God, the epistemology of religious belief, the nature of religious experience, and the problem of evil. If someone who knew nothing about religion 
drew conclusions about the religious mode of life from this literature, she would come to the view that apart from the mystical experiences of few people, the religious life consists of believing things about God. She would have no inkling of the fact that liturgies and rituals are prominent within the lives of most adherents of almost all religions. Between the priorities of academic philosophers of religion and the priorities of most religious adherents, there is a striking discrepancy. While the surge of interest in philosophy of religion is certainly a welcome development, Wolterstorff is likewise right that there's a significant discrepancy between the work being done by philosophers of religion and what he calls the priorities of most religious adherents. I assume Wolterstorff is speaking primarily about Christians, both when he speaks of the philosophers and the adherents. After all, most philosophy of religion is either explicitly or implicitly Christian in nature. There is comparatively little work in philosophy of religion on other religions, and even when the term religion is used in a generic sense, more often than not, the author is talking about Christianity. So the reality is that philosophy of religion is almost wholly philosophy of Christianity. I've talked before about the fact that the very concept of religion was originally a specifically Christian concept, which then got applied to other things that seemed like Christianity in some sort of way. At this point, it is usually recognized that there are 12 world religions. It's worth mentioning that both Buddhism and Hinduism are constructs created by the British back when the sun never set on the British Empire. In other words, people who practice these religions didn't see them as religions per se. That idea came from the British. You might be interested to know that most languages don't have a word for religion. Indeed, we think of the ancient Greeks as practicing a religion, but there is no word in ancient Greek for religion. Put otherwise, we, many centuries later, view their beliefs and practices as religious, but that's not how they viewed them. There's another point that needs to be made. Growing up in the evangelical world, belief was really important. I say that partly to establish that evangelicals are particularly concerned about beliefs. In fact, they're so much concerned with beliefs that most evangelicals think that in order to get to heaven, you have to have the exactly right set of beliefs. Most evangelical institutions, colleges, churches, parachurch organizations, have something like a doctrinal statement. In order to be a member in many of those institutions, you need to either literally or figuratively sign on to the statement. At the college where I taught, we were informed every year when we signed our contracts that the signature on our employment contract was also taken to be a sign that we agreed with that statement. To give away a bit of a secret, on the application for employment, there were three lines provided for anyone applying to work there to voice their reservations or disagreement with the doctrinal statement. Now that part isn't secret. The part that is, is the fact that when people would apply to teach in the philosophy department and say they weren't quite sure about something in the doctrinal statement, they would always be warned that if they were interested in teaching here, listing anything on that form with which they might disagree would probably be a bad idea. I've mentioned before that two colleagues in the theology department at the college where I taught gave students an interesting assignment. Students were asked to turn in a list of the exact things you needed to believe 
in order to get to heaven. The tricky part of the assignment was that they were instructed to make sure that they neither A, listed something you actually didn't need to believe in order to get to heaven, and B, didn't leave any absolutely essential point of doctrine or belief out. But as the students discovered, it's one thing to have a general belief that there are absolutely essential beliefs that one must believe in order to be saved. It's an entirely different thing to be able to list those beliefs exactly, neither too few nor too many, just like Goldilocks. Given that you're listening to this podcast, my guess is that most of you probably find such a belief in belief a little odd. To be honest, I have long found it odd and over time came to see such a requirement as bizarre. How exactly are human beings supposed to figure out which things in the Bible are the ones that you have to believe and which things are, to use a helpful term, adiaphora? That may be a new term for you. Adiaphora are the sorts of things one might believe that aren't essential for Christian belief. In other words, regarding adiaphora, there is room for disagreement. Since I know I have very smart listeners, I can almost hear you saying, but how do we decide what counts as just adiaphora versus something essential or absolutely necessary? Well, yeah, that's a problem. Unfortunately, if you examine the various traditions in Christianity, you will discover that one of the things that separates them, there are others, is that they have differing views as to what counts as adiaphora and which things simply must be believed. Of all the religions, Christianity is hands down the most concerned with right beliefs. No other religion even comes close. You might think that Islam would be similar, but that would be incorrect. For the primary concern in Islam is obedience, not belief. While Orthodox Jews place some emphasis on belief, Judaism on the whole is a religion that's mainly concerned with practice. I think it's safe to say that in most religions, the question isn't something like, do you believe this list of essential stuff? But more like, do you identify with our community? In that respect, then, Christianity is very much an outlier in the world of religion. And yet the question is the extent to which the 2.38 billion Christians across the world are concerned with proper beliefs. In a nutshell, I think this is one of the most basic questions that can be asked about any given religion. I think it's safe to say that while Christians are by no means unconcerned with questions about, say, the nature of the divine and the justification of their beliefs in God, the vast majority of them are far more concerned with living their faith out, which is largely about certain practices that reflect that belief. Consider what the philosopher Charles Tolliver writes. It's regrettable that mainstream contemporary philosophy of religion has largely ignored the role of religion in Christian life and practice. Very few standard anthologies today in philosophy of religion contain any material on prayer, the sacraments, meditation, fasting, vigils, religious hymns, icons, pilgrimages, the sacredness of places or times, and so on. And yet these play different roles in much religious life. A neglect of this terrain results in an excessively intellectual or detached portrait of religion. Turning to liturgy and ritual then is an important step in the direction suggested by Taufer. And the book on liturgy marks a milestone, I think, in that movement. 
However, one might push back on the claim that philosophy of religion is dominated by concern for belief by saying that such tendencies are much more analytic than continental in nature. Indeed, Walter Storff specifically speaks of the priorities of analytic philosophers of religion, rather than simply speaking of philosophers of religion in general. Of course, the reality is that the subdiscipline of philosophy of religion has been so thoroughly dominated by analytic philosophy of religion for the past few decades that when continental philosophers concern themselves with religion, they usually need to label their work as continental philosophy of religion, since the simple label philosophy of religion is almost automatically associated with analytic philosophy. Should we assume that continental philosophy of religion has the same priorities as analytic philosophy of religion? Is it likewise primarily concerned with doctrinal beliefs? A quick glance at work in continental philosophy of religion would seem to indicate that it is significantly different in its priorities and its point of departure. For instance, while Soren Kierkegaard has much to say about specific points of Christian doctrine, his real concern is how belief manifests itself in one's orientation toward life. Belief in God for Kierkegaard is not something purely or even primarily intellectual in nature. Instead, it touches on the deepest concerns of human existence. In other words, whatever Kierkegaard's concern with doctrine may be, it's not with providing an analysis of doctrines in a theoretical sense. Not surprisingly, as someone greatly indebted to Kierkegaard, Martin Heidegger provides a phenomenology of religious life. He asserts that, and now I'm quoting, primordial Christian religiosity is in primordial Christian life experience and is itself such. Heidegger's concern with showing how the beliefs of the early Christian communities of Galatia and Thessalonica are manifested in their lives. Doctrines come into play to the extent that they have a purchase on everyday life. Expanding on Heidegger, in the book titled Experience and the Absolute, Jean-Yves Lacoste takes us far beyond the standard view of liturgy, which he defines as order and ceremonies of divine worship, and claims that liturgy is, and I'm quoting, the logic that presides over the encounter between man and God writ large. In an important sense, he considers his position as somewhat against that of Heidegger, since for Lacoste, entering into liturgy makes a break with everyday being in the world. Of course, he also believes that liturgy proves the possibility of a suspension in a way that returns us to the world. So that break with the world is not complete in nature. For our purposes here, though, what connects Heidegger's and Lacoste's view is that belief is manifested in religious life. Yet the divergence between analytic and continental philosophy of religion is not quite as clear-cut as it might seem. Let me lay my cards on the table. I was first trained solely in the analytic tradition, and then later instructed primarily in the continental tradition, particularly that of phenomenology, particularly that of Husserl. From that training, and from teaching for over two decades in a largely analytic philosophy department, I've come to see that these two traditions often talk past one another. Quite a bit of that miscommunication is due to different terms. But it's also due to different points of entry, or to use continental language, what gets thematized, what gets focused upon. A good deal of the confusion has to do with the word belief. 
Whereas analytic philosophers of religion often take as their starting point the doctrinal beliefs themselves and treat them in a kind of detached theoretical way, continental philosophers tend to begin with lived experience in order to see how it manifests belief. One might think that this is due to Heidegger's turn in being in time to giving an account of human existence, what he calls Dasein, on the basis of how we relate to the world or to our environment. On such a view, it would be easy to think that Heidegger invented something new. Yet the reality is that Heidegger's phenomenology is deeply indebted to that of Husserl, despite their differences, both superficial and real. And here we get to the matter of belief that is much more fundamental than any kind of doctrinal belief. Husserl speaks of a kind of urdoxa, uh, we could translate that as primordial belief, that structures our existence, namely, and here I'm quoting from Husserl, an actual world always precedes cognitive activity as its universal ground. And this means, first of all, a ground of universal passive belief in being which is presupposed by every particular cognitive operation. He goes on to speak of this universal ground of belief in the world, which all praxis presupposes, not only praxis of life, but also the theoretical praxis of cognition. Like Husserl, I see these sorts of beliefs as so basic to human experience that life as we know it would be impossible without them. To drink a glass of water presumes beliefs about water, glasses, and human mouths. To be sure, most of the time we don't think about those beliefs. We simply act on them. In fact, we may never have consciously thought about such beliefs. Instead, our action is proof of our beliefs. The French philosopher Emmanuel Falk describes Husserl's position as an original faith in the world or an originary attitude of trust. I think Falk is quite right in that affirmation. Similarly, in defining the word faith, Heidegger notes that it ranges over a multiplicity of modalities that point toward a primordial doxa, primordial belief. This urglaba or urdoxa, that there is a world and that we exist in it, is so basic to our being that it hardly ever crosses our minds. That may sound complicated, but it's really actually quite basic. In order to get around the world, we need to have certain basic beliefs, like there's a world and that we exist, plus quite a few more things. Of course, given this basic or fundamental belief, this ordoxa, there's no such thing as pure lived experience that somehow is magically free from belief. Instead of all of experience, is always already mediated by belief. One could put this in Husserlian terms and label these beliefs as part of the horizon, or Lebensfeld of our experience. All of us have beliefs of various sorts which are basic and without which we could not function. If this is the case, though, then everyone is a believer. Note that if that's true, then the distinction we often make between believers and non-believers turns out to be a little bit more complicated. We differ, of course, in the content of our beliefs, the exact role that they play in shaping our experience, and the degrees to which we hold them. Many of our beliefs are ones we share with almost everyone across the world. Some are quite peculiar to a particular culture or subculture. On my view, religious belief is a kind of belief, albeit a potentially very important belief, because it can have life-changing consequences. 
However, just to be clear, I do not see religious belief as a special species of belief. Or if someone wants to insist on the unique nature of religious belief, then I would simply say that there are many forms of religious belief that are not necessarily labeled by us as religious in nature. Not having a religious belief in the sense of not subscribing to one of the recognized religions is not the same as having no belief at all. Instead, it's merely another belief, which is why the believer versus non-believer distinction is both untrue and unhelpful. Not to believe in God is not nothing. It is the belief that God does not exist, or that, to quote uh, Bertrand Russell, there is not enough evidence to believe in God. One way in which I differ from Lacoste is that I see liturgy not as something that belongs to Christianity or any particular religion, nor even to religion per se. Further, while liturgy could be seen as something that mediates between us and God, it does not necessarily need to be defined in that way. Liturgy may simply mediate between human beings and whatever they take to be sacred, which could be divine in nature, but not necessarily. Due to both etymological and historical reasons, I see liturgy as basic to living one's life. That is, one's being in the world is always liturgical in nature. There's no such thing as a non-liturgical life, at least at this point in human evolution. Thus, the liturgy of the Mass may take us out of the liturgy of the ordinary of the everyday, but it actually moves us from one liturgy to another, in the same way that specific religious belief removes us from one kind of belief to another. If you find that point interesting, you might want to read my book titled Liturgy as a Way of Life. Here, though, I want to consider what it means to be a religious believer. All of this hinges on what we mean by belief, which I define in three senses. I don't mean to imply that these are the only senses of belief, merely that these three senses can be distinguished, at least in theory. In practice, of course, they are probably so intertwined that untangling them would be very difficult and maybe at the end of the day just impossible. The first is what I call basic belief. Uh, I call that B1, in which we hold beliefs regarding ourselves and the world around us. This is what I pointed to in Husserl basic or grounding beliefs that are part of what it means to be human. We may differ as to what exactly these beliefs are or should be, but it would be folly to say that they don't exist. We couldn't get along without them. The second is what I call belief in someone. This is what I label B2 in the sense of trust. We speak of having faith in someone in the sense of believing that the person will do the right thing or remember us or be such that we can trust them. Such definition is actually the very first one provided by the Oxford English Dictionary under the term believe, namely, to have confidence or faith in and consequently to rely on or trust to a person or theology, a god, or the name of a god. In this sense, one can say that one believes in an elected official, a religious person, or simply a friend. Such a belief can be extended to groups such as a political party, an NGO, a religious group, or even a corporation. The third sense is what I term doctrinal belief, B3, the belief in some particular doctrine or set of doctrines. For doctrine, we could easily substitute principles or rules or practices, though admittedly each of these terms have slightly different connotations. 
Given what I've said, it might be thought that B3 is necessary religious in nature. But I don't see why this must be the case. B3 beliefs are, on my view, about the way things really are. Religious beliefs usually provide an account of the way things are, but so do many philosophical views, arguably astrology, and forms of empirical science that attempt to provide a final picture of reality, or at least as final as one can provide for the time being. One could believe in doctrines, or principles, or rules, or guidelines about how to live, such as adopting various Stoic beliefs, principles, and rules. Or one could be a Platonist, or determinist, or utilitarian, believing in the forms, Platonism, the absence of free will, determinism, or the principle of utility, utilitarianism, is a kind of belief, which in turn influences how one lives. Of course, depending on how we define religion, these beliefs may well turn out to be religious beliefs in the sense of serving the same purpose or function as religious beliefs do for religious believers. The problem with the terminology of belief is that it can mean any of these things or all of them at the same time. Further, one can easily slip back and forth between these meanings perhaps without even noticing the slippage. Moreover, one form of belief does not take the place or negate other forms of belief. I will take it as a given that all of us have B1 beliefs that are basic to human existence. Equally, though, it's not difficult to make a case that we all have B2 beliefs of various kinds. We can be convinced that, say, Joe Biden is the right person to be President of the United States, or that Jesus is a good guy to follow. Either the belief in Biden or the belief in Jesus will likely come with some kind of doctrinal beliefs, such as believing in the goals of the Democratic Party or the moral teachings of Jesus or the view that Jesus is divine. However, it should be clear that one could simply think that Biden was a better choice than Trump or that following Jesus will lead to a happier life than following Epictetus. Exactly what the B3 beliefs in either case might be could vary considerably from person to person. To assume, for instance, that everyone who attends a particular church both deeply understands and subscribes to its doctrines is to make a very serious error of attribution. Which is to say that B2 beliefs do not necessarily lead to a given set of B3 beliefs. One could think that Jesus is a good person to follow, have doubts or questions about various aspects of Christian doctrine, and still decide to be part of a local parish, in the sense of attending services and taking part in the life of the community. Incidentally, you couldn't believe these particular things if you're an evangelical, but you could if you're an Episcopalian or a member of various denominations. In order to explain how I see B2 and B3 beliefs relating to one another, I will first consider the origins of Christianity. My point in that section is primarily this. At the very beginning of Christianity, there is precious little to believe in the B3 sense, at least of a distinctively Christian nature. What would it have meant to be a Christian before such a name had even been coined or most of its key doctrines had been formulated? Most basic doctrines of Christianity only took shape many decades or even centuries later, in some cases many centuries later. Further, we have precious little information as to what followers of Jesus actually thought or even what the early church believed. To be sure, we have ample evidence of what Paul believed. But the very fact that he needed to articulate these beliefs multiple times would indicate that not everyone necessarily believed as he did, 
We also tend to forget that he and Peter clashed over the inclusion of Gentiles in Christianity. And as far as we can tell, that clash doesn't seem to have ever been resolved. Instead, we have a rather substantial body of evidence that beliefs varied quite considerably, which led to many of those beliefs being subsequently labeled heresies. However, simply because a view was labeled a heresy hardly means that from that point on, no one believed it. When I was in my first year of graduate school, the Dutch guy who ran one of the bookshops in town said to me something like, no doubt you have heretical beliefs that you just don't know are heretical. I mentioned that he was Dutch simply because, well, a Belgian would be unlikely to make such a strong statement to someone. When he first said this, I found it mildly offensive. But the more I thought about it, the more obvious that point became. In fact, I've since come to expand on that basic insight by saying that, no doubt, there are things that all of us believe that are false. The main problem, of course, is that we don't know which things are false and which things are true. If we knew, of course, then we would not believe the false things. In the second section, I turn to the notion of Zittlichkeit in Hegel. Don't worry, I'll explain that term later. And Hegel believes that our moral notions are so basic to our beliefs that they don't really have any foundation other than that our community holds them to be sacred. It's only later in the stage of what Hegel terms moralitate, and this is a reference to Kant, that we provide a kind of theoretical underpinning for what we already believe. While Hegel's talking about moral beliefs rather than religious beliefs, I think his view mirrors the development of religious beliefs that I articulate in section one, though with one important caveat. What develops into Christianity may have had its seeds in Jesus' teachings, but the resulting doctrine goes far beyond anything Jesus could have imagined. But as it turns out, Zitlikite is also malleable, and it changes over time and from place to place. In the final section, I will consider Jonathan Haidt's examination of the relationship between belonging, believing, and doing in religion. While I don't completely agree with Haidt, what he gets right is that belief is only a component of religion, even though he uses belief in a very general rather than a clearly specified sort of way. He provides very convincing evidence for his thesis that our moral judgments come first, and then we provide a rationale for them. He takes the same position regarding religion and provides psychological evidence for the idea that we first have B2 beliefs that relate us to a particular person or group that in turn, lead us to be three beliefs. I agree with Haidt that belonging is the most fundamental aspect of being religious, though I contend that living our beliefs out is how we discover what we actually believe, in much the same way that current neuroscience confirms that it's only when we give voice to a view that we actually determine what it is we believe. But we'll have to stop there. In the coming episodes, I'll continue the discussion on belief and practice. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through the PayPal app or at paypal.com. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode in which we continue this discussion.